0: Blessings to you in the name of Jesus Christ. This is Pastors for Pastors, the podcast that supports and celebrates pastors of all churches and denominations. I'm Ken Broman, folks, and I'm so pleased you've joined me for this episode because it's a special one indeed. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Jill Duffield, editor and publisher of the Presbyterian Outlook, the longstanding and distinguished news magazine of the Presbyterian Church USA. Jill will tell us a little bit more about herself in a moment, but I'll tell you now that she's been a pastor, is the author of the recently published book, Lent in Plain Sight, a devotion through 10 objects and is a popular speaker and preacher. Jill has the advantage of a national perspective on the Presbyterian Church, and I think her observations translate pretty well onto most of the mainline denominations in our culture. From that unique perspective, she has some insightful and thought-provoking observations. So without further delay, let's welcome Jill Duffield. Thank you for uh, joining me for uh, Pastors for Pastors uh, podcast this time. It's great to have you here and great to have a chance to talk with you. And we'd love for you to give us a little bit of background uh, about yourself. We read stuff you write all the time, but uh, don't always get to see all of the the background of, of who Jill is.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And um, a little background. I am um, a Canadian native. So we moved to North Carolina. I started fourth grade in North Carolina. So I'm a a good, solid transplant, I think. Been in the United States for a long time. But I think that does sort of color my view a little bit as an immigrant and uh, a little bit of a different cultural background, I would say. Um, And then I went to University of North Carolina at Greensboro and seminary at Union in Richmond and d at Austin Seminary. I've been in this role at the Outlook for almost six years now. And um, I'm married to my high school sweetheart, uh, Grant, and we have three young adult children.
0: I'm thinking of you, not only an excellent writer, but you have to be a professional observer to do what you do and uh, you spend most of your time observing the Presbyterian Church USA I'm curious uh, as a as a professional observer what you are observing at the national level I'm um, this podcast is mostly for local pastors and not just presbyterians but I'm assuming that what you're seeing in the Presbyterian Church is probably true of most denominations uh, in the United States right now uh, give or take a few years one way or the other in terms of trends and and I'm uh, just kind of want to start out getting your picture of the big picture of of what you see going on in in uh, the Presbyterian Church right now
1: yeah, absolutely, and I do think it's probably applicable to at least other mainline denominations. I think in the Presbyterian Church u s a we are trying to figure out what it means to be a mainline church at a time when the mainline church has uh, lost membership and and I would argue probably lost influence culturally over the last number of years, many years actually um, and it's interesting to watch um, our national leaders articulate what it is that we are to be about and of course we hear our stated clerk j herbert nelson talk about a movement rather than an institution and talk about the fact that we are we're not dying we're reforming and um, diane moffett as the president of the presbyterian mission agency with the matthew 25 initiative and and inviting local congregations to engage in that work i think there's a sense of uh, wanting the national structure to have real implications for local congregations and local communities. And I think we're figuring out how to do that. So rather than kind of a hierarchical ladder, it's more of a a net, I would say, of folks coming together with shared values uh, and finding partnerships within the local congregation, other Presbyterian congregations, but also just across shared values and communities, interfaith, uh, secular organizations coming together to work on particular issues. Um, And I'm seeing that being very contextual in communities, which I think is really important. You know, what is the need in our particular community, um, and how is God calling us to serve in this particular place. And I think the National Church wants to be about encouraging that and equipping that um, and resourcing that, which I think is of great value, Um, but I think we're very much still trying to figure that out. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like over the next five years or so, but that would be sort of my initial impression.
0: Presbyterianism has has uh, a tradition of being pretty hierarchical and and so this is a, a real shift and of course, uh, generations growing up in different periods of time when when uh, uh, my generation and older saw the, the 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 different levels of the church as kind of a top down uh, way of operating what you're describing is a, is a real change.
1: Yeah, I would say so. And I think it's been heartening, uh, to see the Presbyterian Mission Agency and the Office of the General Assembly coming closer together in partnership. And now of course they're looking at shared budgeting and things of that nature, which is not easy, but I think it's important. And, uh, those are real conversations with, I think, I think a real, real hope that they will be working more closely together, um, which means a better use, I think, of our resources. Frankly, right,
0: right, and we need to be all about being uh, better stewards of those resources. Um, so, what are you, um, what are you seeing as as the worries or concerns that uh, as you as, as you interact with ministers and um, uh, other church? Uh, professionals, if you will, what are you seeing as the concerns, the worries that folks are having these days?
1: I think right now, and I think this speaks to the pandemic reality and also um, issues of addressing racial injustice. Uh, I think that there is, at the moment, a weariness among church leaders. I think that there is a real sense of call and commitment. But I think there is a weariness right now. Folks are trying to respond to all manner of things happening in their congregations and communities and world. And, you know, that analogy about building the plane as you're flying it, you know, trying to have online worship and trying to do Pastoral care and trying to figure out what it means to have some sort of funeral virtually—all um, of these things are requiring a tremendous amount of energy, and I think I think they're tired. <laughs> I really do. Um, And my hope is that we support one another and that we can say, well, I'm doing this. Why don't you do that? You know, you use the resources I'm using rather than we're all trying to do the same thing in our in our own context and just being pretty worn out. Um, And I think obviously an additional worry are things like resources. And um, we've seen. You know, food insecurity just soar over the course of this pandemic and obviously a lot of economic realities that we're facing and that impacts the church. We're seeing that on a national level. I think we're going to see that on local congregational levels too. So I think there's certainly some worries about that um, and with a sense of not knowing what that's going to be in six months or a year or two years.
0: That weariness is very evident and and um, just... Uh, An anxiety to try to get to some sense of rhythm and uh, regularity with the things that they're doing and predictability and so many decisions that need to be made.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think there's a lot of grief right now, too. I mean, you know. grief of people losing their jobs, grief of folks who are sick, grief of not being able to visit people who are in um, assisted living type situations, so that isolation and, and wanting to be close to people that we can't physically be close to, uh, the grief of, of people dying. I mean, I think all of us are in grief and trauma ministry right now, uh, whether we feel prepared for that or not.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. I, I retired the first Sunday of May, which meant we were we were not able to say goodbye to each other, the congregation and I. We yes, just, uh, you know, That's and I just recorded a, a final sermon and and disappeared. And uh, yeah, uh, so there was grief That's on so the congregation's hard. part about not being able to say goodbye, and and the same on my part. So yes. th- there are there are lots of different kinds of grief in this period of time,
1: and not being able to mark all kinds of milestones. Right. I think, and even celebratory right. things and baptisms yeah. and yeah trying to think of how to ritualize things that we didn't have to think about how to ritualize it's before it's yeah. uh, it's hard
0: yeah. very very tiring uh, at the same time um what gives you hope as you uh, as you oh, see all of uh, <laughs> this going on
1: I see you know a lot of things give me hope, and part of that is you know our, our ordination uh vow about serving with energy intelligence imagination, and love and I see people doing that uh not just pastors, but all manner of church folk, really trying diligently to be creative within these beautiful, horrible constraints that we have. Um, and it's it's exciting to see folks. Just you know, we have this, I think, understanding in the church that uh, we have a difficult time changing, and that's true. But boy, we have seen that when we need to change. We can change and we can do it quickly. It's been mind boggling to see, you know, little tiny churches who are figuring out a way to do worship virtually. And it's exciting to see people doing. Christian education classes on Zoom, and um, I got to speak to a church in Houston on a Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to speak to a church in um, Nashville in a few weeks, and I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right where I am right now, right? But, but seeing that as an opportunity uh, for us to have conversations with folks we might not be able to facilitate otherwise. And I also think it's hopeful I've heard um I was teaching a series of Wednesday night classes with a church and one of the uh, people participating said she's in an assisted living situation she's like I've been at church more since this pandemic than I had been in years because she couldn't physically get to church and now this church was offering all of these things online and it was um something we probably should have thought about a long time ago and didn't And it was a reminder that there are folks for whom this makes church much more accessible. Uh, And so I think there's hope in that. I also think there's hope in seeing the church really wanting to be the body of Christ in the world, whatever that looks like and however we need to go about doing that. Um, So that, that provides me with an incredible amount of hope.
0: I agree. Those things might give me hope too. And, uh, uh, you know, I kind of want to lift up, say, um, how about those Presbyterians? People thought they couldn't change and, uh, they've been doing a lot of changing real quickly. And here we are.
1: That's (laughs) right.
0: Exactly.
1: Which hopefully spurs us on for other challenges. Right. Right.
0: right. Which (laughs) kind of brings me to the next question. Uh, you know, obviously 2020 has not just been about the pandemic. We've had a, a lot of tra- tragic, terrible instances of racial injustice that have been right there in yeah. front of us on the television, and um, very disturbing. And and uh, protests, um, and also violent. Uh, as as some people say, those aren't protests. That's something else. But but um, how how do you see the the church? Uh, as, as you've been able to observe and be in touch with people around the country. How, how do you see the church responding to that and, uh, uh, and trying mm-hmm. to take that all in?
1: First of all, I would say I see them responding to it, and I think that is good news. Um, I see all kinds of different congregations in different parts of the country looking to be informed to educate themselves, to read and discuss and have uncomfortable conversations, to look at their own histories, both personal as congregations, and say, how have we participated in systemic racism? Um how have we both done that unknowingly and how have at times we've done that knowingly? And then in Light of that knowledge, what do we do now? Um, and I do think there is a hunger not only to talk about these things, but to act on them in ways that reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, in ways that really hold up the Galatians about, you know, neither male nor female, and that that there is this, that we are to be united in Christ, and that unity means equity and justice and, um, not just in our personal relationships, but in our corporate life together and in, and in policies. Um, I see people getting engaged with the Poor People's Campaign. I see people getting engaged with our um, social policy efforts in Washington, D.C. Um, I see people in their own local spheres of influence saying, well, where am i called to speak about this to act about this to show up at the zoning committee meeting Um, and so i think that's very encouraging i think the challenge is sustainability right how do we keep at this because obviously it's a 400 plus year um, problem that that we have often not addressed and it's going to take Ongoing effort, and we we need to be accountable about that, and I think we need to support one another in that um, and I think we need to listen to a lot of voices and live with some uncomfortableness um, in some of those conversations which which can which can be hard, and I think we need to be honest about that part too. It can be very, very
0: hard one of the things that uh, seems very hopeful to me is. In, in spite of the things that we've seen on TV that have been individual instances of, of just inconceivable violence and cruelty, there seems to be a new interest or willingness to explore the idea of white privilege as a part of systemic racism. And that, that simply having the privileges that uh, white folks have in our country Contributes to racism um, and uh, trying to examine what it means to have the privileges that we have. That um, uh, we we really haven't talked that much. I don't. I haven't heard much talk about the the connection between racism, systemic racism, and white privilege.
1: Yeah, I do think it's happening, and I and I do sometimes hear from folks, and I appreciate these these comments and questions and conversations because I got an email from someone, for example, and I can't remember exactly what it was in response to. It might've been a book review. I can't remember exactly, but um, this person said, I'm having a hard time with this term white privilege. I, I work in a church where um, these are, they're white people, but you know they're not affluent. Um, they're, they're farmers, they're et cetera, et cetera. And so I don't, Think this works. I don't think they would say they have that they're privileged. And so, and I appreciated that, right? So we could have an exchange. Well, what does it mean then? What is white privilege? And certainly there's intersectionality, but it means that there's not been um, policies that have prevented you because of your color from having access to housing or education or, or loans or all manner of things. So I think part of that conversation is. Understanding what we mean when we talk about white privilege, uh, and and looking at that historically and in terms of policy, um, and I think um, there's a friend of mine who talks about compassionate engagement, right? So being able to say, okay, let let's have this conversation rather than, what do you mean you don't have white privilege? <laughs> of course you have white privilege, right? Uh, and and I think. So it's incumbent upon us, too, to be able to meet one another where we are when there is an openness to learning and, and thinking together about these things. Um, so I welcome those kind of conversations, even though uh, sometimes those, those two are challenging.
0: Right. An, an example of that, I thought it was a really interesting editorial that you wrote about the from General Assembly uh, uh, of our denomination this summer. And uh, the the concept that I'd never thought of before, but it made a lot of sense. You, you really kind of opened my eyes to thinking about it differently. And that is that uh, our polity, which is kind of based on the idea that majority rules, um, when the majority is white and most of us are middle class or above, um, when it comes to taking votes and making decisions, it means the white middle class and above people generally win those votes. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about that in the sense of white privilege or uh, systemic racism in our denomination. And, and I'd love to hear you talk more about that because I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I hope that editorial has generated conversation as much as anything. Um, I think that as Leslie Scanlon is our reporter for The Outlook and she's the one that said to me and it made it its way in that editorial is sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And it becomes just our norms and the water in which we swim. So we don't look very critically at what are the values that are baked into this. And subsequently, what voices are we hearing? What voices are we privileging? What aren't we open to just as a result of the structure that's in place? Um, And so that was my hope with that is really for us to look carefully at how we go about Being the church, particularly on that national level, I think we use some of Robert's rules in local session meetings, but probably not a whole lot. I think there's a whole lot of, (laughs) you know, talking back and forth and it's a lot more open
0: informality.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and obviously we're talking about a large gathering and and that's difficult in and of itself. And it had particular challenges this year virtually. Um, But I I. Someone shared with me a quote from the womanist theologian, Katie Cannon, and she talks about there is no value-free space. And if that is so, then we have to try and suss out what are the values in this space and who are they serving and who who are they excluding. Um, and so that's a conversation that I hope we have in all of our spaces Uh, rather than just sort of taking them, well, this is the way it is. Well, there may well be other ways to go about discerning together what the will of God is. Uh, And I I hope we'll be open to those conversations and looking at it with some critical and prayerful thinking.
0: Obviously, one one of the principles of, of Robert's Rules is that minority voices should get heard uh e- even if even if the majority makes the decision, the process is supposed to enable minority opinions to be heard and and um, as I read about general Assembly uh this summer i'm I'm not being critical of anybody running it. It was a terribly difficult situation. It's uh, tough. Right. But really hard, uh, yes. It seemed like maybe there were a, a time or two where minority voices didn't get heard as much as maybe they could have been.
1: You know, it was it was hard, and I've seen this at other assemblies too. Sometimes the folks who who know the holiday the best have are privileged because they know how it works. And then there's others among us when we show up, we're, you know, trying to figure out the process, and so we're several steps behind. Um and I think this summer's when it was virtual. I mean, it, it was very, very difficult even to figure out how, how do we even do this. But my sense when I was, um, when we were reporting on it, with th- there were moments where it felt like f- there was this movement and there was a sense of this was what I think the body wants to do, and yet the structure was such that
0: mm-hmm.
1: it couldn't do it. And that was part of my frustration Was can't we just have a conversation, even, even in this bizarre setting, you know, can't we call on this person to share something with us? Um, do we really have to have a two-thirds um, vote in order to bring this back to the floor? I mean, and so that was part of the impetus, I think, for that editorial was just sort of a sense of frustration that I think we wanted to have a more organic, conversation around some of that. It, and I recognize that maybe that was absolutely utterly impossible on Zoom with hundreds of people, right? So I just wanna recognize that the that construct made it really hard. But it also I think highlighted some aspects of our life together in a way that we might not
0: have seen right. in the convention. Right. Yeah, I think it might have happened yeah. differently that way. And going forward, who knows? You know, that that may be continued right. that may continue to be a a part of it for a lot of different reasons, uh, pandemic or, or, uh, availability or even cost of, right. And cost. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, it's also an election year and, uh, you know, I don't remember an election year as far back as I can remember that was happy and friendly, <laughs> but this this seems to be the most opposite of happy and friendly that uh, I can remember. And, and uh, with the inability of people to be in person and sit and look at each other and talk to each other, it just seems to me that social media has just become so divisive and so alienating um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious your thoughts about that because it just,
1: yeah, yeah. And I also think everyone is so stressed. I just think our, our current reality is that we're all pretty anxious, pretty stressed, and so uh, it, it's not likely that we're always going to act out of our best selves, right? Um, <laughs> and that gets highlighted and heightened, I think, in this election season. And um, it is easier when it's somewhat anonymous over social media to say something or respond in a way that we might not, if we were face-to-face with people. And I have found in this role, um, that when folks sort of just come at you at, you know, DefCon 10 with a comment or something or an email, I have found that when I respond and, and I always say, thank you for your email. Um, I, and, and I, I try to sincerely mean that because people have taken the time to reach out to me, even if it's because they passionately disagree with me. Um, they're invested enough that they have reached out. And, and, and I will try and hear what they've had to say and hopefully try and learn from that. Um, and whenever that almost always, when I do that, I almost always get a response back. And it's usually much less angry. It's, it's usually much more of a humanizing conversation. It's harder to do that, I think, on Twitter and Facebook and some other of our social media platforms. But um, but I have found that, and this is hopeful to me, that really sometimes we just act out of some impulse. And when we realize there's a human being on the other side of that, we can have a much more gracious conversation, and personally, I try and think about and even ask people what 's at stake in this for you like what 's at the heart of this for you? Why does this cause you so much fear or anger or pain or whatever it is um, and that usually changes the tenor of the conversation we can 't always we can 't always do that, that? but
0: Right. Uh, but how how do you do that personally? How, is that just your personality? Or have, how have you learned to kind of put aside the, at least for me, is that initial reaction of, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what I think. <laughs> um, uh, well, sometimes you... that
1: is my initial reaction, and I have to just take a pause, you know, that holy pause. Yeah. And sometimes I wait a day. and um, Right. and And I... I think it's partly because I really believe and know that we are united in Christ, and that's not of our doing, right? And I, when I go and speak places, I tell people like, "You do not have to like me, but God says you have to love me, and so, and I have to love you, right?" And yeah. and and so I try and remember that, and some days better than others, yeah, right? right? Sure, um, and. Uh, Jonathan Walton, and I heard him speak, I think it was at a Next Church conference, and he talked about the importance of being able to articulate your moral framework. And so you can say to someone, this is why I made the decision I did. This is why I acted in the way I did. This is why I wrote what I wrote. Because for me... My moral framework is X and Y and Z. And I have found that very, very helpful um, because I can say, well, my moral framework is that I really do believe everybody is a beloved child of God. And because of that, I believe that they should be um, treated in this way and they should have access to the abundant life Christ came to give. and For me, this is how I can see where that can be furthered. Now, you may disagree with that. Your moral framework may be different, or it may be the same, but you see it played out and worked out in a different way. We can have that conversation in a whole different way. Um, And I've learned that 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 really changes how we talk to one another. Because when you tell me that you're upset about this issue because it's impacted your son. Whatever that issue with, I mean, I know that that's personal and that's, that's heart stuff. And so it's no longer some disembodied concept or something that I need to be right about. It's something that I want to have compassion around because this is something that really matters to you in a, in a, in a heart way, not just a head way.
0: So you are a really good observer, which means you also are a good listener it's it's clear that you're able to to focus on the other person and listen, and that's that's a that's a skill and a value we all ought to have more of I admire that one of the uh the things that I've been reading and hearing is that in many ways the pandemic and maybe all the other things going on and blending together have sped up some changes. In our culture and in our church, that were happening anyway. It's just happening faster because it's had to be with the pandemic. And and right. um, I, I'm curious as to how you see that happening, and what do you think are the things that after the I don't I don't know that the pandemic is ever over, but after we've gone back to being in person in our worship and in our our daily lives what do you see as the changes that we'll take with us and will become a permanent part of church life
1: yeah yeah i've been thinking about that a lot and i do think it has sped up some some changes and i and i think certainly there's some gifts in that i also think that it has highlighted i will say for me it has highlighted the value of being in person together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I miss that tremendously. Right. I miss being on the pew and singing with people. I, I, I went to an outdoor masked up um, prayer service, and when we mumbled the Lord's prayer together, I got teary-eyed because yeah. we were saying this together, you know. You could so
0: hear I, other people doing it too. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. And and
1: so I think that that has been a gift, right? Not to take that for granted. And I think we, right. will, we will be so glad when we can sit around the table together in the fellowship hall. And um, yes. so I think it highlights the gift and the importance of that. And I also think it highlights that we need to have a lot more on-ramps at the church, and mm. we need to have a lot more channels through which to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to be community, and that a virtual community is community. And for some, that is the way that they will access the community and, and will be a part of worship. And that is okay. That is not going to mm. be somehow a less than. So I do think we'll, in some ways, be a hybrid church, and that I have I've thought for a long time. In our culture, we kind of access everything when we want to access it. Um, Mm. You know, we watch things when we want to watch them, not at eight o'clock on Thursday night like we used to. You know, we go to the gym when we want to go to the gym. I mean, and so the church has been, in some ways, an uh, an outlier in that. This is when we come to church. This is Mm -hmm. when we have these things. And I think our new reality is such that that's no longer true. And I think we're going to have to continue that so that folks can have access. And they may listen to the sermon while they're walking their dog, um, because that's when they can do it. And I think we need to, to value that and celebrate that and recognize we're going to have to be both and in-person and also available virtually, which I think right. is going to be a challenge just in terms of resources and energy, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. Um, How, do also, staff? How do you staff that? I do for that? I think communications people are going to be hugely important. They already were, but they're going to be even more so. I think we're going to have to get much more savvy about um, social media and how we use it and how we reach out to people with that. But I think that's exciting. Um, And I also will say there are other groups who do that for ill uh, and have great strategies for reaching people with their messages that Mm -hmm. that are counter to the good news of Jesus Christ, I would argue. And so boy, do we need to be intentional about sharing the gospel through every medium possible and partnering with other people who know how to do that and partnering with people who are in different generations. Um, I have a 17-year-old who likes to critique the PCUSA's Instagram account with regularity. Um, <laughs> so we need to call on those folks for whom that's their native language. You know, That's right. That's yeah. right.
0: <laughs> Your 17-year-old could get a job. <laughs> right. She worked all
1: summer for various Presbyterians, you know, uploading okay. and editing their videos, which is, who right. knew that would be her summer job. But
0: <laughs> to, to see churches and, and ministers who this is not what they signed up for, uh to exactly. to begin to yeah. learn how to live stream and post on on YouTube and uh you know learn yeah. how to talk to a camera uh and 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 realize that you're actually reaching people that you hadn't been able to reach before. Absolutely. It's very exciting.
1: Absolutely. It's very exciting. And it's fun, yeah. right, when you have a Bible study and there's people from, you know, Four different yeah. states and occasionally a different yeah. country, and you connect in that way that you you could have before, but you never thought That's to right. do it necessarily right. uh, so there there is some hope and energy and some creativity around this uh, that I think is going to I think it's going to energize the church in a new and different way um, and make it accessible in ways that perhaps it has not been before, as I said the the woman in the assisted living place was like. I've been at church more this month than I had been in years, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I do think that's exciting, and it and it's it it is one of the uh, the the pandemic is not a good thing, but it, it's one of the good things that God is bringing out of it. I think is is forcing yes. us to do things that we should have been doing anyway, and now we have to do it, right. and
1: uh, right, a, and
0: in that way, reaching folks and and connecting with folks
1: and i hope i hope we're being um kind of gracious with one another and and um being able to fail forward sometimes you know and just say you know we're going to try this and this is not this is not our wheelhouse, and this is new to us. But boy, we're going to give it a go. And and I think there there has been um, some forbearance, yes. some mutual forbearance around some of That's that. Right. So and now everybody knows what what it is when Zoom freezes up. And you know, I mean, we've all had those <laughs> moments when our our cat jumps on our lap. And and there's sort of a humanizing factor to this that that has actually, I think, been a gift. It's in yeah, a lot of ways. Kind
0: of- We get to see each other in our homes. Right. You know, with the dogs and cats and kids.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) This has been fun. Uh, I'm just curious is there anything else that you would like to share? Anything that uh, we haven't talked about that that is on your mind or that uh, uh, you'd like to talk about?
1: Well, it's been a gift to be with you. So I'm most grateful for the invitation. And I think that. I would say that as challenging as this season is I do believe that it is shaping us in ways that we can't yet see but that God will nonetheless use and I'm I'm hopeful even as I know we have so many folks who are really hurting right now but I think that we're beginning to see things that other people probably have lived on a daily basis and hopefully we are going to respond in ways that show forth the the love and compassion of of Christ, and I I really believe that um, that this is going to be a generative time on the other side of whatever the other side of this looks like. It'll be incremental. I don't think that's going to be a back to normal. I, I heard someone say we shouldn't go back to normal. We should strive for better, yeah. and and I like I yeah. like that. Yeah framing yeah, of this. I agree.
0: I, I heard somebody say that it, it, any church that goes back to February and picks up from there is making a big mistake.
1: Yeah. I would agree with that. Absolutely. We've learned a lot. Yeah. they wrestled blessings yeah, out right. of this. That's I
0: a think. Great and, and, and maybe a limp or two in the, in the hip. <laughs> and maybe a limp or two.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, Jill, thank you so much for this time. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and uh, we just have met very briefly before but to get to know you a little better too. It's,
1: it's a gift. Thank you so much Thank for having you. me. I Thank appreciate you. it.
0: What a privilege to have Jill with us for this important program. I hope you found her observations as thought-provoking and perceptive as I did. We are surely in a time of reformation. And revolutionary change in the culture and in the church. And Jill's insights, I thought, were right on target. If you have feedback you'd like to offer on this or any other episode, please email me at pastorsforpastors2020 at gmail.com. That's pastors, the number four, pastors2020 at gmail.com. If you haven't done so already... Please subscribe to this podcast and give it a positive rating so it'll be easier for other pastors to find when they search for a podcast like this. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Ken Broman, folks, and this is Pastors for Pastors.